word and open with me uh, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Today we'll begin our reading in verse 35, and we will proceed on through verse 48. It's a large chunk, and what you'll notice as you look at this, uh, this passage that we're going to see today is that at first glance, it might look like a very abrupt transition, maybe even a bit disjointed from what we've been studying over the last few weeks. If you've been with us and you've been following along in our studies over the last few weeks, you know that we have been dealing with the dregs of daily life. Uh, Jesus has been teaching us how to deal with our possessions, what to think about greed, what to think about materialism, what to think about worry over whether we'll have enough of the things of this life. And now there is a shift. Now eternity breaks over the horizon, illuminates it like a flash of lightning, and it seems almost as though it's come out of nowhere. Uh, Jesus will begin to speak in this passage about his second coming and about being prepared for that second coming, but it really is the perfect transition from what we've just been learning. You think about the reason that man who was uh, so foolish back in verse 20. Uh, what was wrong with his foolish dealing with his money and with his materialism? Well, it was the fact that he lived as though this life is all that there was, that there was no eternity coming, and he didn't think about the Lord who was over him, the Lord who would uh, demand uh, his, his soul in a single night. And then why is it that Jesus could tell his disciples that they need not to worry about the things of this life. Well, it was because they have a Father in heaven whose desire it is to give them an eternal kingdom. And so this really is the perfect follow-up, as Jesus has been telling us that we can't live in this world as though this world is all there is, as though it won't be renewed at the second coming of Christ. And so that's what Jesus will begin to talk about today. We begin to see and to think more about eternal things and preparing ourselves for that day. Now again, we are uh, in Luke chapter 12. Our reading today, beginning in verse 35, and we'll follow through to verse 48. Before we read this passage, please join me again in prayer before our God. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you teach us, you shepherd us, you lead us according to your word, and you lead us to yourself. We pray that as we read it today, your people would be prepared to look forward to the coming of Christ. We thank you that you have come once, and we, we long for that day when you will come again. Set our hearts upon that day. Make us to pray together and with the, the rest of the saints. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you make it so among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word, as we find it in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Jesus tells us to stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service, and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch, or in the third, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into, and you also must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is 
the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master finds doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and will put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study its truth today. Well, back uh, in 2008, uh, when he was still alive, Dr. Stephen Hawking made a public appearance for the installation of an art piece. It was uh, the piece that's now become known as the Corpus Clock. Maybe you've seen it online, and if not, I'll try to put a link up after the service. But the Corpus Clock uh, is technically a timepiece, although it doesn't look much like one at first glance. It has no digits or dials or numbers on the face. Instead, there are simply a series of small blue LEDs that trace around the face of the clock to mark the time. The clock actually is constructed as this, as this enormous gold-plated disc with ripples that flow out from the middle, and the inventor of the clock says that they are meant to signify the Big Bang and the beginning of all things back in uh, the prehistory, he says. And at the top of this, this clock sits uh, a moving sculpture of a monster that the inventor has called the chronophage. It's Greek for the time eater. It looks like something like a cross between a locust uh, and one of those deep sea fish with those massive jaws and those needle-like fangs. Imagine putting those two together and it's up on top. Uh, and as the seconds march around the perimeter of the clock, uh, the chronophage is there gobbling them up to signify that once time has passed, we can never get it back. And rather than marking the hours with a chime like many clocks, the corpus clock features the sound of rattling chains the sound of a hammer pounding on a wooden coffin. Now, I'm no great connoisseur of modern art, but if I understand this piece correctly, I think it's meant to be something between a lament and a pep talk, a kind of despondent carpe diem. It's the secular admission that since time waits for no man, what we've got to do is to make the most of what we've got while we've got it. It is, at the very least, uh, a sort of secular acknowledgement that this life is transient. In fact, uh, beneath the clock, inscribed in limestone, is a quote uh, in the Latin version of 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. I've selected the phrase, the world and its desires are passing away. And it sits there adorning, ironically, the, uh, the library of the College of Corpus Christi. 
In fact, that's where the clock takes its name, from the College of, of Corpus Christi. And Corpus Christi, of course, means the body of Christ, and it's a part of the larger University of Cambridge in England. It was founded in 1352, just three years after the Black Death uh, claimed the lives of half of the English population. And really, among those who died, a very large portion of them were clergy. And Corpus Christi was established as a training ground for priests. It was meant to be a place where shepherds for God's people could be equipped to teach people not just the first half of 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, but also the second half, that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, what the clock gets correct is the fact that time is the master of all men. We each have a limited number of hours and minutes in this life to do the things that we'd like to do, to do our work and to raise our families, to make impressions upon other people. What the clock misses, though, not that time is the master of all men, but that there is a God who is himself the master of time. That time is God's invention. He created it. And he moves it as he sees fit. He orders the seasons, he orders the ages, just as he orders our hours and minutes. And so standing above the circle of time, what we ought to see is not some devouring monster. We ought to see the divine mover. The one who appoints his purposes throughout history. The one who will bring together the apogee, the zenith of all existence, the plan that he has before the foundation of the world to unite all things together in Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about in these parables, these two and a half parables that we're reading. This is what he's preparing his people for, the culmination of all things, the reckoning of human history. He's beginning to talk about the day when he will return in power and in glory to judge the nations. He's beginning to speak of the day of the Lord that will come like a thief. Or Peter says the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And that means, dear friends, that the rallying cry of the Christian is not just that we ought to seize the day. Rather that we ought to stay dressed. We ought to keep awake. We ought to be prepared for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. That's what time is about. That's what time is about for everyone, but especially for the believer. Every hour, every minute, every second of every day is God's opportunity for his people to get ready. It's our chance to wait and to work until Christ returns. And so Jesus tells us in these parables, and through these parables, I think, that until he returns, his disciples are to wait as eager servants. That is uh, our first point today, first of two main points. Our calling as Christians is a calling to wait as eager servants. Now, you see that call very clearly in the bookends that surround the first paragraph that we read, if yours is broken down the same way the ESV is. Verse 35 tells us, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home. But then look at verse 40. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming. Now these are two slightly different 
images to teach us that the second advent is something that we ought to plan for. It's something that we ought to expect. Reminding us that when the Christian looks to the future, our thoughts ought to be steeped in the language of Revelation chapter 22. In a sense, Jesus' last words to his church in the New Testament. Three times in that chapter, Christ tells us, Behold, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. Surely, he says, I'm coming soon. And to which message the prophet replies, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is the heart cry of every believer. It is the cry, it is the prayer that looks forward with anticipation that Jesus really is going to fulfill his promise and come again. Not in some metaphorical way, not in some merely spiritual way. Jesus is coming again the same way that he left, says the angel in the beginning of Acts. He's coming again in the flesh. He's coming again with judgment for the wicked. He's coming with redemption for the righteous. That means that Christ's second coming is all our hope. It's what we long for. It's what we wait for. It's what we look to. And so we are called to wait and to look and to long with all of our lives. That means that getting ready for Jesus' second coming is about far more than making one decision praying one prayer, or or doing one deed, and then getting back to the rest of your busy life. Anticipating Jesus' return is meant to encompass everything that we do as Christians. That's the point of the command to get ready, to be dressed in verse 35. Actually, the language there is that, that great biblical phrase, to gird your loins. It comes from the days when long robes that they wore in those parts would would have to be tied up and gathered around the waist before you could do anything really of any substance, anything more than than standing around and, and hanging out. If you wanted to be ready for anything, ready for any action, you had to prepare yourself by being dressed. I saw a guy running on the street in Westford on Friday. Not such a big deal. You see lots of people running, but normally when you see people running, they're prepared, and this man was not prepared. In fact, my first thought was was maybe he was hurt. Maybe there was an emergency because he was running and huffing and puffing down the street, and he was wearing work boots and jeans and a flannel shirt tucked in, and you're thinking, where are your tennis shoes? Where are your shorts? You're you're not prepared at all. You're dressed for the, the completely wrong activity. And that's the point in verse 35. There's a way to get ready. There's a way to prepare yourself for what you're waiting for, for what you're doing. Get dressed. Gird your loins, says Jesus. Be prepared. And then the servants also have to have their lamps lit. That means they had to put into some forethought. They had to make sure they had enough oil in reserve, like the wise virgins in another parable. They had to make sure that their Their wicks were neatly trimmed to give the maximum light. There were things that the servants had to do, but really all of those things they were doing weren't the point. They were really just how they were waiting. The waiting was the point. In fact, if there was no one to wait for, they could just let their robes hang down. They could have gone off to bed. They could have have enjoyed themselves. They could have relaxed a little bit. They could have let their hair down. They could have forgotten the lamps. But instead, they were waiting. They were anticipating their master's return, and it changed all of their behavior. On the other hand, probably these servants also had other things that kept them busy while they waited. 
in fact, that's probably a good thing, especially if, if the master might not be back until the wee hours of the morning. In fact, uh, some uh, sources from history tell us that, uh, that marriages, that wedding feasts in this time could last up to four weeks. Who knows when the master is coming back? Well, you don't just stand around and, and hang out. You don't just wait uh, idly. It's not a lethargic sort of waiting. It's an active waiting. Be prepared, stay ready, keep yourself engaged. And so maybe somebody had to grain, grind the grain for tomorrow. Maybe one of the servants had to check uh, on the children. Maybe one of them had to make sure the animals were watered. And those things are fine so long as you can multitask, so long as the duties that you're engaging in don't become a distraction from actually waiting for the one who's coming back. Because in an ultimate sense, it doesn't matter much if the chickens are fed. It doesn't matter if there's no one there to receive the master when he comes home and when he comes knocking. Well, so far, folks, we're, we're still in the world of parables and and metaphors, and I understand that. But behind it, there is a challenge. And I hope you're hearing it. That is that Jesus is coming back as he promised. And how does your anticipation of that day change your daily living? Lots of things that we can do to simply fill our time while we wait. In fact, I bet some of you have taken up new hobbies in the last six months. You've learned new ways to pass the time, and that's great. That's fine. There are all sorts of things you can do. You can raise your kids. You can do your job. You can get an education. You can love your husband. You can care for your neighbors. Those things are necessary. They're part of living in this world, but those things aren't primary. In fact, all of those things ought to fit for a believer inside of another category, the category of getting ready and waiting for Jesus. It's the thing that ought to change everything that we do as believers. And so for those who claim to follow Jesus, that's what makes the difference between doing your job just well enough that you don't get fired and and doing your job to the best of your ability, even if nobody's watching over your shoulder. This is what makes the difference for the believer between waiting patiently for the Lord to provide a godly spouse, maybe that, and going off to just have some fun with somebody, maybe anybody who might be mildly fascinated with you. The difference is whether you are living for the joy of the moment or whether you're waiting for the smile of your Lord when he comes again. We could multiply examples. You know there are other ways in which Christians engage in all the normal things of life, and it looks from the outside that they're doing the same things that everybody else is doing. They're living, they're working, they're functioning in all the normal ways of life, but they do them differently. They do them from the heart, and they do them for someone else. Not in order to become a Christian, mind you. This isn't salvation by works. It's not saying if you can get ready enough, then then you'll be prepared. This isn't getting ready in order to become a Christian, but rather this is showing us how Christians get ready. There's a cart and and a horse issue here. It's because we're Christians that we approach these things with a different purpose, because Christians have learned to live like people who are waiting. In fact, that's the secret of Christian living that Paul wrote and told to Titus in chapter 2 of his letter. He begins there in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That salvation, he says, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing 
the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, what does it mean to wait for Christ in this present age, according to Paul? Well, it looks like a different way of living, doesn't it? Those who have received God's salvation have been trained, have been taught to, to put off ungodly passions. They've been trained to be clothed with the grace of salvation so that we can run to him when he comes. We've been trained to light our path with the word of truth so that we'll not be ashamed to open to him when he comes knocking. That's how Christians live in the world. We live with a whole life of anticipation. All our lives are changed because we're waiting for our master's return. And Jesus says when he comes back, he's going to come with blessing for those who are waiting. Notice the repetition in verses 37 and 38. Blessed are those servants, Jesus says. Blessed are those servants whom the master will find awake when he comes. If he comes in the second watch, if he comes in the third watch, if he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Blessed are they, says Jesus. In fact, they're going to be so blessed uh, in, in this uh, parable, the master of the house is going to be so pleased to find his servants waiting that he's actually going to do a bit of a role reversal. He's going to take on the role of a servant. And he will gird his own loins. He will cause the servants, the slaves, to sit down and to eat his food and to enjoy his hospitality. There are some commentators that I came across this week who really try to stretch this passage to make this blessing seem normal, almost. They tell us, uh, you know, in, in ancient days, it really was customary for the bridegroom to serve the guests at the wedding. And so maybe this is what we're seeing. Or, or they remind us that in some households, the, the servants really were more like members of the family than just sort of domestic furniture. But all of that misses the punch of the parable. <laughs> the point is that Jesus' disciples would have been gobsmacked when Jesus said this. Their jaws would have dropped. Their eyebrows would have raised. Are you kidding me? Nobody does this. Nobody reverses roles like that. There wasn't a single household master in the ancient world who would dare to wrap the towel around his own waist and to pour drinks for slaves in his own dining room. Nobody would do that. Nobody would do that except Jesus, of course. You see, even though Jesus isn't showing us what normal masters do, to bless their servants, he is showing us what he does for his disciples. It means that Jesus has written himself into this parable. It's meant to be a foretaste for his people. It was a, it was a preview of that night and that conversation in the upper room where the master washed the feet of his disciples. And he sat down with them and he broke bread and he distributed it. And he poured a cup and he gave it out and he said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. I've revealed myself to you. I've revealed the Father to you. I've told you all that you need to know about me. I call you friends. I draw you near. I give you the blessing of knowing me, says Jesus. That's how he treats his people. It was meant to be a preview of the cross, a place where Jesus said he didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. It was meant to be a foretaste of that heavenly banquet where the bread of forgiveness is served to God's children at Jesus' expense. You see, this was a picture of the gospel, wasn't it? 
was a picture of the, the magnificence of God who calls us to come and to be satisfied in him, to buy wine and to buy milk without price, even though we don't deserve it, even though we can't attain it, to eat and drink spiritual peace that money cannot buy. This is what Jesus is speaking about. This is a foretaste. It's a preview of the satisfaction that we find in Jesus when he returns or when he calls us home to him. That's the blessing that comes to Jesus' disciples. Those who spend their lives waiting for him will one day be satisfied with the one in whom they were waiting and for whom they were waiting. And so Jesus tells us to be ready. He comes at an hour that we don't expect. He comes with a blessing that we can't imagine. He comes to welcome those who are waiting. So that's the first call to Christian disciples. That until Jesus returns, we are to wait as eager servants. But secondly, until he comes, we are to serve as faithful stewards. Or to serve as faithful stewards. Now in verse 41, Peter asks the kind of question that we've, we've come to expect from Peter. It's a question really that was prompted by Jesus speaking of those who are going to suffer loss when he returns. It's the picture of the thief coming in the night. When, if a thief is able to break into a home when nobody's there, well, the thief can take everything he wants for himself. And so Jesus is saying it will be at the second coming. When he returns, there will be some who are utterly unprepared, and they will be those who lose everything. And Peter pipes up at this point, and he wants to know, who are you talking about, Jesus? Some are going to suffer loss. Some will lose everything. Who are you talking about? Is this for us or is this for everybody else? And Jesus doesn't answer him, at least not directly, not at first. Instead, Jesus tells another parable. He answers a question with a question. He, he waits for Peter to apply this to whomever it, it might apply to, to put it where it fits. Now, there are familiar elements in this second parable in beginning in verse 42. We've got a master who's gone away. We've got a household full of slaves all, all going about their business until he returns. But then Jesus introduces this new character, verse 42. He says, who then is the faithful and the wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Now that word manager, that's the one that other times in the New Testament often is translated as steward. A steward is, is a servant who has gained the trust of his master. A steward is one who has been given authority over the capital, over the possessions that belong in the household, and he can, he can distribute at will. He can stand in the place of the master to, uh, to dole out these things here and those things there. He's not the master, but he, he serves the function of the master in many ways. He's the one who, who cares for the other slaves in the master's place. You see, it's a, it's a position of prominence position of responsibility. And so already we're beginning to get a partial answer to Peter's question, who is this about? Well, well, in a sense, we could say that this parable applies to all believers. That's because as we wait for Christ's return, we all have a responsibility to care for one another. We've been entrusted with gifts. We've been given possessions of the Lord to see that our brothers and sisters around us are built up in their faith. In fact, in in 1 Peter chapter 4, clearly he got the message. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, the language of stewardship is applied to all individual Christians. He writes this, As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards, as good managers of God's varied grace. That is, God has given his Holy Spirit to make us all effective ministers to one another. And that means that we ought to keep busy while we're waiting. We ought to serve as faithful stewards. We ought to serve one another. We ought to be busy, not just for the sake of of self-importance, not just busy for the sake of busyness, but busy for the sake of the kingdom, busy for the sake of of one another. There are responsibilities that we have to give to one another. We wait. We keep busy by, uh, Hebrews tells us, stirring up one another to love and to good works. We keep busy by encouraging one another all the more as we see that day drawing near, the day of Christ's return. See, every Christian is a steward. We all have a God-given duty to help one another to wait faithfully. And in fact, that duty grows as the Lord gives us more and more responsibility. Think about all the parents. Think about all the husbands. Think about all the teachers and the mentors. Think about the tightest two women that the Lord has sprinkled throughout our church. Think about all those shepherds with a lowercase s that, that the Lord has given to help other believers come along in their faith and get to know more about him and what it is that he demands of his people. If the Lord has put you into one of those roles, he's calling you not just to be ready for yourself, but to take seriously your job to help the least of his children prepare for his return as well. And so there is a sense in which this parable has to do with all of us. It speaks to our our general Christian responsibility in the places that God has put us. But really, and primarily, this parable is aimed at those who have a formal authority in the visible church. This parable actually did apply, first of all, to the apostles. They were the foundation stones of the New Testament church. They were the ones who were laid at the beginning, and the church was built upon them together with Christ, the cornerstone. But after them, it also applies to the pastors and to the elders that the Lord has called to minister to his children. In fact, perhaps that's why the stakes are so high in the verses that follow. Because as you read the New Testament, you see that God always has incredibly high standards for his ministers. He has high standards for all of his people, but it comes through most clearly when, when the Lord speaks through his prophets to those pastors and elders who lead. Again, in in Titus chapter 1, Paul uses the word steward again, and he talks about the requirements upon an elder. He says an overseer, as God's steward, ought to be above reproach. That's who Peter's talking about here. This is who Jesus is talking about, rather. He's talking about the stewards, and and James tells us, chapter 3, verse 1, you know that not many of you ought to be teachers, because those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And we say, well, is that the world, or is that the Lord? And the answer is yes. Everybody judges a teacher with greater strictness, and the Lord doesn't hide that. When he comes again, he will give great scrutiny to those that he has placed as shepherds and as stewards over his church, and so for my brother elders, for Andrew. This is a word to you as well. This is a solemn word to think. How does this apply to you and your shepherding in the church? And Jesus says that those who serve well in these roles will be giving the, given the blessing of greater service. That's pretty typical for the New Testament, isn't it? Verse 44 tells us that when the master comes, he will set faithful stewards over all his possessions. What exactly that looks like in in heaven, I I can't say. 
somehow Jesus is using the language almost of a promotion uh, to tell us what it's like to experience the joy of our Lord and our King. Now, this is consistent with what we read elsewhere, that, that those who, who deal with spiritual goods well on earth are going to be given access to heavenly resources. Those who are faithful over little are going to be given charge over much. And so, brother elders, take heart. God has good things in store for his stewards. Those who serve him faithfully now will be given the grace of serving him faithfully for eternity. Unfortunately, though, not all the leaders in God's church have been faithful men. Many of them fit the description of verse 45, abusive men, self-indulgent men, faithless men. And to those who use church authority to exploit God's people, Jesus issues a warning as strong as any in Scripture. Take a look at verse 46. Jesus says to those, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now, before you begin to feel sorry for the one uh, that he's describing, Remember that Jesus is not talking about some well-meaning elder who just couldn't get his act together. Right? Jesus is, is not dealing in this passage with a pastor who sometimes struggles with, with the remaining effects of, of indwelling sin. This is a man who has usurped an authority in the church, even though he is a rank unbeliever. Notice where his faithlessness begins, folks. Verse 45, and here I think actually the New American Standard gets it correct because the NASB says, if that slave says in his heart, that's the language. It's heart speech. It's thoughts that nobody else can see except the Lord who knows what is in the heart of man. If that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming. That's where it begins with unbelief. That's where this kind of treachery comes from in the church. You know, sometimes the media loves to latch on to stories of abusive ministers and priests and pastors, and they want to shove it back in the face of the church and say, oh, look at this. Look, you're just as corrupt as the rest of us. And in a sense, they're right. But those who would sink to that depth prove themselves to be complete unbelievers. It comes from this beginning thought that there is nobody. There is nobody to hold me to account. It begins uh, when shepherds of God's sheep have heard Jesus proclaim that he's coming back, and yet they say, there's not going to be anybody to check on me. Nobody looking over my shoulder. There won't be anybody to call me to account. And then begin to treat God's household as if they were the master. That all the belongings, all the possessions, all the, all the fellow slaves actually are there to do their bidding and to make them feel better. And you've seen them, haven't you? You've seen the leaders who have done more harm to the people under their care than they have done good. The pastors who sadly use their networks and their connections to make sure that sexual scandals disappear for a time. They are the men who, who preach prosperity while they rob the poor of their tithes in Latin America. They're the college chaplains who love nothing more than to find some incoming bunch of evangelicals so they can tell them how much everything they've been taught in their home church really isn't true at all. You know who they are because you've seen the headlines. You know the scoundrels who've hidden in the ranks of the church over the centuries. These wolves who dress themselves in sheepskin looking for an easy meal. 
In fact, as Jesus said these words, there was one such wolf among the twelve. There was a steward there, wasn't there? When he used to help himself to the, to the money bag, the alms that ought to have gone to the poor, and yet he was, he was fleecing the sheep in order to clothe himself. He was a disciple who followed Jesus only in order to advance himself. He was a traitor who sat and he listened and he heard the teaching and he flew under the radar of the rest of the 12 until it was too late. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, as Jesus says, hearing the master's words, knowing his will, and yet refusing to do it? I think most of us can't imagine that. We do it in many ways ourselves, small ways perhaps. There ought to be a reminder when we see these glaring examples in the media, in, in wherever we see them, that our heart is like those hearts as well. We ought to guard against that heart speech that says, oh, the master may not be coming back. The Savior's not coming to check in on me. Nobody will hold me to account. You see, in every Christian church throughout the centuries, this passage has been a blinking neon caution sign to warn those who creep into the church hoping to feed themselves. It's a message that Christ sees the unbelief that begins in the heart before it ever shows up in the headlines. It's also a promise, isn't it? It's a promise to those who have suffered under those ministries. It's God's word that he cares and he sees and he knows those victims who've been taken in and devoured. God's word to us here is that he sent his son into the world the first time to be a suffering servant. He sent him to die to win the souls of his people. And soon, he tells us, soon he will send the resurrected son to judge the wolves. Send him to gather the lambs. He'll send him to set all things right. But in the meantime, brothers and sisters, the Lord calls his children to wait. I hope you've seen in this passage that it's not a quiet, pensive, lethargic sort of waiting, like we're just waiting for something to be over. This is more like the waiting of Christmas. We can't wait for something to happen. There's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference where you're just waiting around, waiting for whatever it is that's going on to be done. And there's the waiting where you're looking forward, hoping that something will happen, hoping that something will come. That's the waiting that God's calling us to. It's waiting that's filled with faith in action. It's waiting that stretches to hold on to John's promise. Yeah, the world and is passing away with its desires, but when Christ returns, those who do the will of God will abide forever. And Jesus is telling us to wait apply ourselves to be busy for the sake of the kingdom. Charles Spurgeon, when he preached on this passage, offered a benediction that seems to me to be a, a good summary and a good place to close today. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, may the Lord keep you waiting, working, watching, so that when he comes, you may have the blessedness of entering into some larger, higher, nobler surface, service than you could accomplish now, for which you are preparing by the lowlier and more arduous service in this world. So the Lord is calling us to, to wait and to watch and to work, to prepare for that day when he comes again. Amen. May it be so in the lives of his people and in the life of our church. Won't you join me together in prayer?
Oh Lord, we pray that you would cause your people to be ready for your return. Help us to be ready, clothed with salvation from on high, clothed with faith and repentance. Oh Lord, light our path so that we may welcome you with the light of your word. Help us to anticipate that Christ will return just as he said. Help us to look and long and never be found doing anything that we would not want to be found doing when he returns. Oh Lord, help us to live unto you and to die unto sin. None of us will wait perfectly. And so we pray for your grace while we wait. We would see more of our Savior and his provision for us. We thank you for sending him. We pray that you would send him again. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, now hear God's good word for you, brothers and sisters, God's benediction. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.